I, as a kindergarten kid, I, I have very few memories of kindergarten, but one of them is that we were in this, this Halloween. I was in this Halloween production play thing, and uh, it was before I liked getting on a stage, and I was scared to get up on the stage, and I had to do... I think like a dancing routine where I was maybe a witch. I'm not totally clear on the memories, but I think I was a witch and and there was a circle. And then at some point when they said go, this was my big moment, there were like four of us who were supposed to go around this circle and, and I don't know, like ride the bowl or something. I'm not sure what was supposed to happen, but like ride the broom around this circle. And we rehearsed it, I think. And we got to the big day and we were supposed to go a certain direction and it started and the other three yahoos went the wrong direction around the circle and I stayed in character and I went the right direction anyway and so they're going counterclockwise and I'm going clockwise and, and, it's, and so here's the thing, here's the thing, even though I was right and they were wrong, who do you think looked bad in that moment, right? I mean, who looks, my family gave me the encouragement later. Um, I wasn't crushed over it, but I did it right. They did it wrong. And yet I am the one who looks stupid. And uh, thankfully, I'm a person that is a little bit different and that I, I like to be countercultural. I, I enjoy uh, ruffling people's feathers and going against the grain probably more than the average person. But, but for most of us, it's difficult. This is the thing. Is it's difficult when we're the only ones going in the right direction, isn't it? Because we look bad in some way. We look like we're doing it wrong when we're the only ones going in the right direction. And there's this famous uh, sociological test, and it's basically like this. Let me grab my whiteboard for a second. So these sociologists, these psychologists and sociologists did this test where they, they just had two lines on a board, one like this, that's not a very good pen, but, and one like this. Can you kind of see those? Yeah? Okay. And so they had a room full of fake students, and their job in this classroom full of fake students was all of them, when asked which line was longer, were supposed to say the shorter one. Okay, so I say, let's just practice this. Everybody raise your hand, uh, except for Michael right there. You don't know, okay? Pretend you don't know. Everybody in the class, except for one guy, is supposed to say this one is longer, okay? And then, and then the test is to see whether the, the test subject, the guy who doesn't know, has the guts to actually say that the long line is the long line. And so, ready? Here we go. Michael, you're not in on it. Which line is longer? This one? Raise your hand. Good. Or this one, raise your hand. See, so Michael demonstrated this perfectly, and we didn't even talk about this, but what they found in this test is that a high majority of people refused to go against the grain, even though the answer was obvious, they would point to the shorter line and raise their hand, like that one has to be the longer line. And it demonstrates this, this same idea. None of us like to go against everybody because, I don't know, for one, we think we're going to look foolish. For, for two, I think we, we have a feeling in us that, that it's like, it's not gonna matter. I mean, why can't I just put put my hand up and fit in because the class is obviously stupid and we might as, might as all well be stupid together because it's not going to matter. And it's like this, you know, you kind of know this, your parents when you were a kid, 
if you wanted to do something and you use the excuse, well, everybody's doing it, then they would inevitably say, if everybody was jumping off a bridge, then would you jump off the bridge too? And you're like, well, that's different. But really, if every single person in the whole world was jumping off a bridge, you'd have a little bit of a feeling like, I should probably jump. There might be a tiger coming, you know? Maybe there's an earthquake. What's happening? You would get caught up in it too if literally every single person was jumping off a bridge because there's something in us that says, I should go with the flow. I should go with culture. To not go in the same direction as everybody else is weird. It's going to mess up the flow. Maybe I'll get in the way. Maybe I'm going to cause a problem. How come everybody else is doing it that way? Maybe my thinking, my belief, my idea, my suggestion about which line is shorter or longer is wrong. And so what happens, and you already know this, is that we end up going in just kind of the same direction of life as everybody else because we don't think it's gonna make a difference and we're just gonna stand out and we are the ones who are gonna look like we're going the wrong direction around the circle. And that is, I think, one of the, the biggest problems for us when it comes to living a beautiful life. If you look around you and everybody else is living an average life and everybody else is living a certain way that makes them fit in, that makes them look just like everybody else or at least not stand out from everybody else, then it just makes sense somewhere deep in our brains, sociologists agree, just to go in the same direction to live just like everybody else because we'll fit in and it's not that bad and it's average and I don't want to mess up the flow and, and what's the difference anyway because I'll be the only one and, and I'll look like the one that's going the wrong way in my life. And so as we talk about living a beautiful life, that's what we're talking about, not being average anymore. We're shooting in this series over 10 weeks uh, just, to be, just to be better, just to have lives that matter, lives that are beautiful, lives that, let me just give you a couple of, of things that I've said about what a beautiful life is, a, a life uh, that is morally good, a life where when we die, people at our funerals, they, they say that we we're awesome and important and valuable and they actually mean it, uh, a life where when we're dead and gone, there's still value from what we did and, and good things still exist because of the effort that we put in. A life that actually matters to people around us is actually making a difference. Uh, a life that when people look at us, they're like, wow, that person that person lives exceptionally right there. That's different than everybody else. And, and we're finding, I hope you're finding, that, that in this book that we're looking at, First Peter, it's just filled with these godly tips on how to live beautifully, not normal, not average, not okay, not just a little bit better than okay, but beautiful. But one of the hangups, and you know this, is that when you go home from the sermon and you say, well, that's how I can live beautifully, you go, well, nobody else is doing it, and so I'm just going to look like the fool, and not only that, but I'm going to be the one who looks like I'm doing it wrong. And Peter, I think, he shows us something that's important in these verses that we'll look at today, starting in 1 Peter 2.1. He shows us something that suggests that, that if we will just think different about going the opposite direction, if just a few of us will think differently about going in the opposite direction, then perhaps something amazing can happen. Perhaps something beautiful 
can take place on a grand scale. And so here's, here's how Peter begins in verse one. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. The therefore reminds us of, of what ended kind of chapter one. And at the end of chapter one, he says to love one another. And then he gives us this list of things that we must remove from our lives if we are going to actually be loving people. And uh, malice, which just means evil, Deceit, which means deceitfulness. You could have guessed that. Hypocrisy, which means masking the inward evil with an outward show. You kind of knew that too. Envy, which is wanting things that God doesn't have for us or that other people have. Slander, any speech that harms or intends to harm another person. And so Peter says that we should get rid of these things. And the word to get rid of something is, is a word for like taking clothes off. That's kind of the, the word picture that Peter gives us. And so I want to demonstrate that with this hat. I really like this hat and it was my intention on our road trip to wear it the whole time. How do I look? Uh, so when Bryn flew down, I forgot my hat. It was going to be in every picture. It was going to be fun. I like it. Some of you who have been around a long time might remember it from uh, Cowboy Fred at one of our VBSs. There's kids in the community that only know me as Cowboy Fred, I'm pretty certain, because of this hat and a little southern accent. Um, but, but this hat, so I forgot it. I was going to wear it. I was, uh, you know, I had a new haircut that I didn't want to have to deal with, and I was just going to wear the hat the whole time. And... I forget it, and I was sad, and I tried to buy another hat, but none of them were as cool as this one, so I didn't. And, and Bryn flew, my wife, in Medicine, LA, and she was supposed to bring me a couple things, and she said, oh, I forgot the first one. I said, what about my hat? And she said, oh, I left that one intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> and so here, here's, here's, here's why the hat is important, because a lot of you think I look foolish right now, even though I don't, and I don't really care what you think, but, but watch. I just take it off, I kind of do this to my hair, and I look better, hopefully, you think that. And one of the things that, that we don't want to harp on in this series, but one of the things that can make you look more beautiful is simply just removing certain bad things from your life. That's what Paul wants, excuse me, Peter wants us to see. He just wants us to see that, that sometimes to live more beautifully, you need to get rid of some things. Now, here's the problem with a lot of Christians today is that we only focus on some big things and we think if we're not doing those big things, then, then we're okay and we're more beautiful than everybody else. And they're usually sexual sins or, or other sins that really stand out, like nobody can help, cannot help but notice them. These are the types of sins we focus on. But let me just one more time read this list for you, like evil or deceit. I mean, think about that one, just dishonesty. Peter says, if you will stop being dishonest, then it's going to lead you to be more beautiful in your life. Or hypocrisy. Man, we're like known for hypocrisy in Christian circles today. What if you just not stop being you know, sinful, but what if you just stopped acting like you weren't sinful? And you just told people who you were and showed people who you were and you stopped putting on a mask, you'd be more beautiful. And if you stopped envying what other people had and, and you were just satisfied with what you had and God had given you. And, and this one, oh man, like some churches are built on this, thankfully not our church, but, but slander, like you just say bad things about people and you're okay. How many of you, don't raise your hands, are just okay with saying bad things about people? You know, like, I mean, it's just something we accept. And Peter says, here's a list of things you can just take off like an ugly hat and all of a sudden your life will be more beautiful. 
this is kind of a side note, but it just popped into my head. It was kind of funny. Uh, somehow somebody tweeted something. That's Twitter for those of you that don't know. They tweeted something, and it was this girl, and she does little funny eight-second videos that go on Vine, another social media network that probably nobody here under 23 has heard of, uh, except for me because I pay attention. Uh, but but her Vine, some of them are like Southerners can make anything sound nice, and she'll, so, she'll, so she'll say these things that Southerners can say that are mean. And I think the church is kind of like this sometimes. Like she'll say, and it's, I won't do the Southern accent, but she'll say, oh, honey, your mirror must be broken. Let me get you another one. I kind of did the Southern accent. You see that? And so it's like this kind of backhanded compliment, like, let me help you, but really you just look bad. And sometimes in Christian circles, we do that same thing. We just have accepted talking badly about people. And Peter says, if we'll just get rid of these sins, then all of a sudden we, we take a step forward and living a life that is more beautiful. And he continues. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tested that the Lord is good. So this sentence in Greek is probably connected to the last sentence. So it's like, as you take off your ugly hat, then also I want you to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, if you've been around, if you were ever in my youth group or even uh, when I was running the college group here, then you've heard me preach on these verses right here. And one of the things that I I like to say, and I think it's so important, is that I'm never going to to tell you to read the Bible more, or I don't ever want to tell you to read the Bible more. I think you should read the Bible more, but I don't want to tell you that because the command that's actually for us in scripture is not read the Bible more. It's want to read the Bible more. I mean, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, which is a reference to the word of God, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. See, where we have it all backwards in Christian circles is we think, I'm just going to force myself to read the Bible, fill in the blank, X amount of minutes per day, and that will change my life spiritually. But Peter doesn't say, hey guys, in these churches in Asia Minor, here's what I want you to do. 10 minutes a day. You guys read the Bible 10 minutes a day. He says, crave the word of God like a baby craves milk. I happen to have a baby. It's a wonderful illustration. And my baby, Hazel, she craves milk like I don't crave anything really. I mean, she wants milk when she's grumpy. She wants milk when she's tired. She wants milk when she's happy. She wants milk all the time, every second until she's full, until she's completely filled up. And what Peter is saying is is when it comes to the word of God, then this should be your attitude. Like you should just crave it. You don't ever have to tell a baby, hey, you should drink more milk. Nobody ever said that to a baby. They just want it, and so they need it, and they get it, and that's how it works. For me, and I've used this analogy a million times, but I don't know if I've ever used it up here, Um, and and that is uh, uh, this friend of mine in college, her mom made turtle cake, and it is perhaps the world's greatest substance. Uh, It really is this incredible dessert with caramel kind of going through, and this frosting that is different than normal chocolate frosting and is perfect. And so uh, I got to the point when my friend's mom would make this for her and it would be at her apartment. Um, 
I would just leave a fork in it (laughs) and I'd walk in and I would just cut some off and start eating again. And and there's a couple of foods that do this to me. Like uh, I wrote them down, like turtle cake is one. And then my wife's fried rice. I don't know what it is, but I just crave it all the time. Like right now I actually crave fried rice just because I said fried rice and, and there's this connection. And so for me, it's like, why even I brought a fork just for illustrative purposes. Uh, I I like, I just want to leave my fried rice in the bowl and because I'm going to come back, you know, I'm not going to not come back to it. And ice cream is another one. I just eat ice cream right out of the carton at our house because I'm going to eat it all anyway. Ice cream, a tub of ice cream doesn't last more. 36 hours is about as long as it goes. When I go to a house and I see, and so you look at me like I have diabetes, but, uh, <laughs> but, but this is the truth. This is why we don't buy ice cream very much because I go to other people's houses and there's this thing that I was kind of unaware of. It's called freezer burn. Uh, like that doesn't happen to our ice cream. Like it's a weird, it's a weird thing that takes place if ice cream stays in a freezer too long. And so I just, I sometimes eat my ice cream with a fork because I just get in there and it's faster. All right, it's very primitive, I know. Uh, and this, this is, I think, what Peter is getting at. He's like, crave the Bible, the Word of God, like you crave turtle cake or fried rice or ice cream. Just want it so badly that you leave a fork in it and you go, I can't wait to get back here because that's how much I like it. As we were driving, um, you know, we, we hit nine states in, in, well, we drove five total days or something like that, but it was over an eight-day period. We hit nine states. And, uh, and the funny part is Jared, my cousin, he lives in Texas, uh, and, and we drove through just this little slice of Texas, the, the Texas panhandle, the very top. It takes like one 20th of it or something, 125th. And it is like the ugliest part of the country, I think. It's terrible. Like you're dry. And it was actually raining. And, and so it's horrible and it's ugly. And so now in my head, Texas is just a terrible place. All of it. Because I had this, this just little kind of chunk of it. Uh, Unlike that, we saw a little chunk of Utah too and we went to Zion National Park and it's the most beautiful place that I've ever been. Every one of you should plan a trip to Zion National Park. We can go there together if you want. Uh, I said this to somebody before church and I don't know if I've ever been to a place like this before, but it is so beautiful that I could not capture it on camera. I, I never felt like a picture was good enough. And I, don't, I usually think my pictures are better than the real thing, but, uh, but especially with a little editing. But this, I could not capture on camera because it was so beautiful. And it makes me want to see other things in Utah because it was so magnificent. And what Peter says next is just like that. He says, crave this so that you may grow because reading the Bible is a part of growing in your relationship with God now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's like, you have an understanding. You become a Christian. You now see that God is good. It probably means like good is in good, like it's morally good and he's right and he's valuable and all those things and it's just like tastes good like you get a feeling of God and it's like no other feeling that you've ever had when you just get a, a, a that feeling of his presence and and you you get a whiff of it if you will and and sometimes we talk about uh for church things Brandon and I talk about how it's kind of like somebody gets a, a whiff of uh, of something in our church service and you can see it in their eyes and then somebody else will see them get a whiff of it and all of a sudden our our service goes this happens from like dead to to powerful just because somebody got a whiff of God's presence and Peter is like look 
You should crave the word of God because if you're a Christian, you have tasted God and now you know how good it is. You've had a bite of turtle cake. You guys haven't maybe, but you've, if you've had a bite of turtle cake, then you want a turtle cake. If you've had a bite of, of Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream, then you want chocolate peanut butter ice cream. And if you've tasted God, then you should want the word of God. And it's also that you can grow in your Christian faith. And so here's what happens, I think. It's the only explanation I can give because people feel better when they read the Bible. Uh, people who are Christians have, have felt and felt the presence of God in their lives. They know how great it was. Uh, some of you know, like when God says something to you, when he provides you direction, or as Brandon was leading us to, into rock, paper, scissors prayer today, he used the word guidance. When you get the guidance from God that you need and you've longed for, then, then all of a sudden it's like, wow. But yet, yet, we don't crave the Bible. And Peter is like, remember that the Lord is good so that you'll crave, you'll want, you'll desire this tasty thing called the word of God. And then you'll grow up in your salvation and your life will become more beautiful. You see, if you're just forcing yourself to read the Bible more, I don't think it's ever gonna help you be more beautiful. I mean, it's good if you're just forcing it, but, but really it's when you start to love the word of God because you've tasted God and you know how good he is that, that really you start to grow in your faith with Jesus. And I saw this uh, in college a lot, going to a Christian university. You would see people start to get a little excited about the Bible and it's all they wanted to do was stick their head in a Bible and learn more and, and, and hear from God more because they, they got a glimpse of how great it is. And so here's the, just an encouragement. First, remove the ugly hats. But second, just remember how great God has been to you if you're a Christian and then dive into the Bible. And if you find the Bible to be dry and terrible and you bored by it or whatever, don't start in Genesis and read through Leviticus. Just pick a spot in the New Testament and start to read it. Uh, and, and just do whatever you gotta do to develop a taste for the word of God. I can tell you this, that, that when I'm away from it now, this is the honest truth, and it wasn't always this way. I used to force myself to read it. But when I'm away for the Bible, from the Bible for a long time, I don't like it at all because I've tasted how good it is and how much it changes my life and how valuable it is to me and the way that I treat my wife and the way that I do church and all of it. And so I wanna get back. I wanna have a fork right there ready to go so I can pick it up and start again. But Peter continues, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The idea of coming to Jesus isn't just coming to him for salvation, but it's the idea of coming to Jesus constantly. You're coming to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. You're returning to Jesus. And he says, you who are Christians now have the ability to come to Jesus consistently to come to Jesus constantly. Hebrews 4.16 describes it this way, one of my favorite verses. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And this picture conjures up the idea, the image of the temple in the Old Testament 
we now who are Christians, because of what Jesus have done, can come to God consistently. And we in some ways become a picture of the temple, which was, and I know this is hard to believe, perhaps the most beautiful building that has ever been built. When you look at scales and models and pictures of what the temple would have been like, the amount of money that went into it, the amount of gold that was, that was put into it, there is nothing on earth today, and I don't think anything that's ever been on earth since, that was as majestic and as beautiful as the temple. And Peter says, this is really important. This is going to bring me right back to where I started about going the opposite direction of everybody else. Peter says this, when you're a Christian and you are constantly coming to God so that by him, through him, through his word, you may grow, then you are a brick in the building that is the new temple of God, the most beautiful thing that the world has ever seen. Peter says, when you are constantly coming to God, then you are a brick, and everybody else who is doing it too is a brick. And when there's enough bricks, uh, people coming to God, then what you have is a building where God's presence most fully dwells, a spiritual building, where God's presence most fully dwells, and you become something that is magnificent. Wayne Grudem said this, the beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be expensive gold and precious jewels, but the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christians' lives, qualities with which much more effectively reflect the glory of God. You see, this is, this is the beautiful thing about church. I can live a beautiful life and you can live a beautiful life. And there will be some impact. Our friends, our families, they go, wow, you're different. You stand out. You make an impact. This life will outlive you. But when you and I live a beautiful life together within the confines of what we call church, then we become a dwelling place for God that is so magnificent that it, that it has far-reaching implications. The whole world begins to see that we are beautiful that the church is beautiful, that Jesus is beautiful, and that they should give themselves to Christianity because it is beautiful. You see, the problem, I think the problem, one of the, there's a couple of problems. One is that in, in the Christian church in America today, sometimes we just settle for like people being okay. But really, we should all be shooting for beautiful, and the other problem is we're such an individualistic society that, that we, you've maybe even said this before, what does it matter if I'm part of a church because I can, I can do my Christian thing alone? And you're not right, but we could give you credit for that statement even though it's neglecting this other part. And that part is that we all need to be together so that we become this beautiful building that the world cannot help but ignore. You see, the beauty of your life is important, not just because you can impact a few people around you because it makes you feel good, but because when you draw together with other Christians, and that's what we do here, we gather together as a church, and, and when we do, and, and when we know we're coming back together, we become a building that stands out for the glory and the power and the awesomeness and, and all of those things for God. And, and so you must be a person 
You must be a person who is longing for the word of God like a baby longs for milk, who is removing the ugly hats, and who is constantly coming to Jesus, both corporately and individually, so that you, together with me and the people you're sitting around right now, can become something so beautiful that the world goes, that's what we've been looking for. If every person is a brick on earth, Christians are ought to be beautiful bricks that join together to become a beautiful house. And then it says that this is important because we make these spiritual sacrifices. In Hebrews 13, 15, it describes one of them as singing God's praise. In Hebrews 3, 16, it describes uh, them as doing good, spiritual sacrifices, doing good and sharing possessions. In Philippians 4, 18, it talks about giving money for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Uh, spiritual sacrifices also are referred to when, when we're talking about the service of God. When you do things for God through our church, you are making a spiritual sacrifice. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holding, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, we think if we go the opposite direction of all of culture, then it won't make a difference. But what we should be thinking is if we go the right direction, the Jesus direction with all of the people in our church, with all the people in the church, then what happens is we will make an emphatic difference on the world because we will become a building that is incredible. And people will look at us and go, that's what I want to be a part of. You see, there's beauty in your life when you do the things that Peter talks about, but there's also beauty in our collective effort to worship God with our lives. And this requires growth, and growth requires the word of God. But the real beauty is the collective beauty that can take place in a church when we all start to go the way God wants us to go and not the way that the culture tells us to go. The idea is God says go this way, and everybody else in society is going this way, but somebody's got to go the right way so that a church can go the right way and then everything's going right again. We need you to be beautiful so that we can be beautiful. That's what Peter wants us to hear. And then he continues, for in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of the building that is beautiful. And for us, it's like there's two choices. We can go the way of society, the way that everybody seems to be going, and then we'll just trip over Jesus, the stone. Or we can get on board, do our best to live beautifully, and he becomes our cornerstone, and we are built up from him. Now, think about this with me. Think about Jesus and how people think about Jesus and what they feel about Jesus and, and how they talk about Jesus and all these things. Jesus is, is beautiful to people, right? I mean, people like Jesus. There's a book called They Like Jesus But Hate the Church. There's a whole book called that. And the whole concept of the book is interviewing people that like Jesus they say, well, Jesus loved people, Jesus cared about people, Jesus changed the world, but I hate his followers. 
And, and the problem is his followers, I think this is the problem, his followers are trying to go the same direction as society and not the same direction of Jesus. And Peter says, he is the chief cornerstone and we who are constantly going to him and craving his word are being grown up into this beautiful, beautiful building. And we can't go the opposite direction of Jesus. You see, that's what the question comes down to. Are you going to make a choice to go the direction that Jesus wants you to go? Or are you going to make a choice to go the direction that other people that you know are going? And we should know that the most beautiful way to go is always the way Jesus went. Peter continues. Can, continues. Oh, no, no, I need to say this too. I need to say this. You see, this is the main question. What do you actually believe about Jesus? I mean, this is the question in this passage right here is what do you actually believe about Jesus? When you look at Jesus, do you go, well, you're a stumbling block to me being able to live I want? Or do you go, hey, you're the cornerstone in me becoming all that you have called me to be? The question is, like, do you really believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Have you really given him your life? Are you really in step with him? Do you really want to go the way he wants you to go? Because until you decide that Jesus is the cornerstone and not the, the tripping stone, the thing that gets in your way, then you will never live a beautiful life. I think Peter wants us to hear that. He'll always just be something that's kind of in the way of you living the way that you want to live. But when you say, you are my cornerstone, you are the, the first piece in what I'm trying to become, I want to get in line with you and step with you, I want to be built on top of you, I want you to be my foundation, then all of a sudden our lives become more beautiful. And if enough people's lives become more beautiful, then, then the church becomes more beautiful and the culture becomes more beautiful. And so let me, just, let me just say it one more time, like let me just ask it. What do you actually believe about Jesus? Like when nobody's looking and the songs aren't playing, like is he a stone that gets in your way or is he the chief cornerstone of your life? Because if he's the chief cornerstone, then you will do your best to go the way that he wants you to go. And then Peter finishes this thing. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter describes Christians. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. These are things that stand out for their beauty. They are. And Peter says that we have been given the right to be these beautiful things because of the incredible mercy of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We know the story. Jesus came out of heaven he sacrificed and, and by dying on a cross, something we'll celebrate in communion in just a few moments. He suffered, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was killed. And he did all of it so that you could receive the mercy of God and become God's special possession, a, a royal priesthood, something of value and worth, something that's beautiful. And so it doesn't fit. This is the problem. It doesn't fit for us just to want to look like everybody else when God's mercy has made us something more beautiful. 
but instead we should be doing our best to polish and shine the beauty that God has given us so that we together are something so magnificent that the world takes note. Now it's interesting to me here, he says that we uh, have been brought together in this, this beautiful thing so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. And that is exactly why coming together as a church is important. You see, we, we think that coming to church is important for us. Like I get something out of it. I'm filled up. I like to hear the songs. I like to hear the sermon. It's good for me. They have okay coffee, you know, whatever. Uh, that's not what the Bible describes. It says that you're important, the importance of you being at church is, is for what you can put into it, that you are ascribing praise to God corporately with a bunch of other people who are doing their best to live beautifully, and so now God is magnified. You see, we gather here because it's a bunch of beautiful bricks hopefully coming together to do something that shows the world the beauty of God. You think you can be a brick sitting over in a corner? Just getting, you know, I'll come and I'll be a brick and they'll polish me. I'll come and I'll be a brick and hopefully they'll chisel me into something better. But what Peter is saying is that you're a brick in this, this building that is Creekside Bible Church because you have been brought here to be built up together so that we can declare the praises of God and the world may know how great and wonderful and awesome and beautiful God is. And when you leave here, you should be craving the word of God so that you may be a growing brick, a better looking brick when you come here on a Sunday morning and declare God's praises together. Church doesn't exist so that you can get filled up. Church doesn't even exist primarily so that you can grow. You grow so that when you do church, it can be something more beautiful. And we have it all backwards People wander into the church service, they sit in the back, they partake, they grade the sermon, they go away, and they say, well, I'll grow again next week. And Peter says, you grow and become more beautiful so that we, when we come together, are more beautiful as we declare the praises of God. You see, beauty takes place as you crave the word of God and you grow, but the real beauty is the collective effort of a church coming together to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness. And isn't it cool? I mean, isn't it cool just to be able to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness? Because we were all ugly, weren't we? I mean, you know your life if you're a Christian before Jesus and after Jesus, and maybe you were really young, but you know what you'd be like if it wasn't for Jesus. And I can tell you, I wouldn't even be close to the man I am today. And I'm not a perfect man. I wouldn't even call myself a good man, but I would not be close to the man I am today if Jesus had not called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He called me out of ugliness and disgustingness, out of the, the mud and, and, and the grossness of this world, and he called me into something better to be his beautiful possession. And so it's a privilege for us to declare his wonderful praises. So here's, here's what I want you to see, um, and that's this. I know and we know that it's hard to live beautifully when everybody else is living normal, average, okay, slightly better than average lives. Because all of a sudden we'll be weird. We'll be different. We'll be countercultural. We'll be awkward at times. We won't fit in in the same groups we used to fit in with. 
But the real trick of it is that living beautiful is not important for you. It's important for God as we come together and declare his praises. And so when you look around and you go, well, it's not normal. I'm, gonna, I, you know, I'm just going to say that the bottom line is, is longer because I'll fit in or whatever. Remember this, that what depends on it is not just you having a beautiful life, but us having a beautiful religion, a beautiful church. And that's important because we want God to have all the glory and the fame. And so make a decision to live beautifully no matter what direction everybody around you is going. And make a decision, make a decision to crave the word of God because you have tasted how wonderful God is. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that that you would help us not to give in to peer pressure. And we so often think, God, that that peer pressure is uh, something that that teenagers face, Lord, um, that when we get older, we no longer care or whatever. But Lord, all of us do. It's hard to live counterculturally. It's hard to be the weird guy. It's hard to be the guy that doesn't do certain things or does certain things that don't fit in with our friends or our families. And I pray, God, that all of us would choose to be willing to go the opposite direction of everybody around us because we know that the beauty of your church is in some ways dependent upon it. And the sad reality of our current society, God, and you know this, I am your God, (laughs) is that so many people look at the church as an ugly building because they look at the lives of people in those churches and they look just like everybody else. But I pray that this church, Lord, would be a church full of beautiful stones, not because of us, but because of the work that you're doing in our lives. And I pray, God, that as people come in our doors, as the world looks at us at events that we help with or our events that we run, our VBS this summer, God, um, that they would go, wow, there is a beauty there that I am drawn to, I am attracted to, God. And they would stop tripping over you, the stone, and they would start, Lord, instead to make you the cornerstone of their lives. I pray, God, that we would all go the way you want us to go, no matter what culture says, uh, and we would live beautifully. I pray these things in your name. Amen.